0: Welcome to Kingston Reed's Word to the Wise podcast series for HR and safety professionals. Welcome to our third podcast in our four-part series on the challenges and opportunities arising from recent amendments to workplace laws. My name is Krista Lennard, partner in Sydney, and I'm joined by my fellow partner, Shelley Williams from our Brisbane office. Hello, Shelley. Hi, Krista. We're discussing the changes to sexual harassment laws today uh, that will be taking effect from the 6th of March 2023. It's good to be back on the airwaves with you, Shelley. Likewise. So just as context for our discussion today, the Respect at Work report, as you all know, was commissioned by the Australian Human Rights Commission and it was published back in March 2020. uh, And it focused on providing a new framework for the prevention and reporting of sexual harassment in the workplace. Now the underlying premise of the report was that workplace sexual harassment is not inevitable, it is not acceptable, and it is preventable. As a result of one of the 55 recommendations made in the report, the Anti-Discrimination and Human Rights Legislation Amendment Respect at Work Bill, it's a long name, was introduced and received royal assent on the 12th of December last year. Now, the Respect at Work amendments introduced the positive duty on employers to take reasonable and proportionate measures to eliminate unlawful sexual harassment, unlawful sex discrimination and victimisation as far as possible. Now, we've discussed in our previous podcasts principles on how to eliminate sexual harassment in the workplace and really the focus for employers is on safety. Everyone has the right to be safe at work. Policy, we know, it needs to be evidence-based and that forms the, the underlying principles for, for how and why we implement our policies in the workplace and the procedures that we follow. And obviously, key to all of this is that prevention is the focus for employers. Now, in addition, the recent amendments to the Fair Work Act have introduced even greater protections against sexual harassment in the workplace. So, Shelley, over to you in terms of telling us about what these new changes mean and those protections, what they are.
1: Yeah, sure. So one of the, f- the first um, elements of the changes that have been introduced is this new prohibition on sexual harassment in the workplace that's been introduced into the Fair Work Act. And it includes this in connection. So it- it's a prohibition against sexual harassment in connection with work. The prohibition applies broadly to protect workers, prospective workers and persons conducting business or undertakings. And it also includes any sexual harassment that occurs by a third party, such as a customer, for example. Employers, importantly, can be held vicariously liable for acts of their employees or agents unless they can demonstrate that they've taken all reasonable steps to prevent the employee or the agent from doing the unlawful acts.
0: It's that taking all reasonable steps threshold. It's got a high threshold, isn't it? It and is. that really means different things for different employers depending on the company's size, the maturity of where in the life cycle the company is, the industry yeah. they operate, right, all of those things. So what does it look like for medium to large organisations?
1: Yeah, so at its, at its very core, it's about being proactive and not reactive and it's about an employer essentially attempting to successfully avoid liability. So, The default is essentially that an employer is vicariously liable for the actions of their employees and agents. So whether an employer has taken all reasonable steps um, will arise in the context of defending a claim. And in most circumstances, an applicant will be asserting that the company or the organisation did not do enough to prevent an act of, of discrimination or harassment in the first place. So this means that in order to successfully Uh, use that defence of having taken reasonable steps. An employer must have taken appropriate steps before the act of
0: discrimination or harassment has occurred. Right. So acting reasonably in response to a complaint or discrimination or or, or harassment is not sufficient. That's right. It's really important to respond properly, but courts will usually
1: take a two-step approach to assessing what is reasonable. So firstly, looking at what steps the employer has taken to prevent the discrimination or harassment occurring, uh, and then considering whether there were other reasonable steps that could have been taken. So at the very least, an organisation or a company should be able to demonstrate that they have properly drafted anti-discrimination and bullying policies, as well as diversity and inclusion policies in place, and that these are applied consistently, and that's a really important part of it, and also reviewed periodically. So... Usually, we recommend that an annual review take place. But I think in light of these changes, that really needs to be done in advance of of March this year for employees, including specific training for supervisors and managers up to senior executives and even the board level, and ensuring that employees are receiving that training on appropriate workplace conduct, how the policies work and what the expectations are in respect of those policies with the focus of giving employees and leaders the tools to actually speak up and to stop the conduct from occurring. So that's really taking it back to that prevention piece which we're talking about, Krista. So what mm. the research refers to in, in that respect is, is teaching employees and managers to take an active bystander approach
0: and giving employees the tools to, to be able to speak up in the workplace. And we're seeing more and more of that as employers become more familiar with that approach. Yeah, that's um, right. It really is important, and we're seeing obviously the benefits of that with uh, employees reporting to their managers that they do feel more comfortable once they have those tools to, to enable that speak up culture that, that companies so often talk about trying yeah. to enable. Yeah, that's exactly right. There are right. systems. So there the, are the systems in place. I think also it's necessary to have for receiving and managing complaints. And the mechanisms to take effective steps to deal with complaints fairly and expeditiously is really an important thing too for ensuring that you're meeting that reasonable step um, defence. And where there's substantiated conduct, making sure it is appropriately managed including, you know, ensuring that there's disciplinary action if there are substantiated findings up to and including termination. Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. So you've still got to take that holistic approach. It's it's obviously the focus is on prevention, but you've still got to have appropriate systems in place to deal with complaints when they are received. And we often see employers failing on the reasonable steps defence because despite having policies in place, There's there's a couple of failings that we we often see. So the training's not conducted frequently enough or there isn't sufficient records being kept of of attendance where it has been conducted. The training is either very basic or simply a sort of a tick and flick or tick-the-box exercise, and the information being conveyed is not sufficient enough to give employees that requisite understanding of how and why certain conduct may be appropriate or inappropriate in the workplace. Also very often the steps taken following a complaint being made are criticised as being either too slow, insufficient for the seriousness or the gravity of the allegations or inconsistent in application. And then finally, employers can often be criticised for not thinking beyond simply having those policies and conducting periodic training about further steps that can be or should have been taken to prevent discrimination or harassment being or taking place. And of course, while hindsight is a wonderful thing, the burden ultimately sits with the organisation to think about the particular culture across each specific part of the workplace, uh, critically assess how decisions are being made, really through the life cycle of, of employment. So from recruitment and hiring practices all the way through to those complaint management
0: processes. So if a complaint is made and an employee is not satisfied with how the company manages it, or simply if they wish to take it further beyond the company's reporting procedures, they now have another avenue thanks to these changes to the workplace laws under the Fair Work Act.
1: Yeah, that's right. And the, the, the changes here are really some of the most significant in terms of the, the avenues that a, an employee or an applicant now has available to them. So now if a person alleges that they have been sexually harassed in contravention of these of the new prohibition, they're able to apply to the Fair Work Commission to either do one or both of the following, which is to make a stop sexual harassment order or to otherwise deal with the dispute. The application can be brought by that aggrieved person or um, a union which is entitled to represent their interests.
0: Looking at those orders and what the legislation now says, it makes it clear that if an application consists solely for an application to stop sexual harassment, the commission is required to firstly deal with that dispute within 14 days of the application being made. And if the commission is satisfied that a person has been sexually harassed and, and it's a two-pronged test, yeah. that there is a risk that they will continue to be sexually harassed, it can make an order, any order it considers appropriate. However, it can't make a pecuniary payment order or a, a money, an order from any compensation, financial compensation. But those orders that it can make really are focused on the prevention of that person being sexually harassed again. So considering practically that the type of stop sexual harassment orders that the Fair Work Commission may make, in making those orders, they have to take into account the outcome of any final or interim investigation that's taken place in the workplace prior to the complaint coming to the commission. Whether there's been any other procedures available to the aggrieved person, if so, what were the outcome of those procedures, what was the company doing in order to to deal with the complaint and any uh, sustained findings, and really any other matters that the Fair Work considers relevant in in dealing with the case – Now, as I said, they have a wide discretion as to the types of orders it can make, and those orders generally will mirror those under the anti-bullying jurisdiction. So they could include, for instance, that one or more individuals obviously stop engaging in the sexual harassment, that there be changes to the workplace arrangements between the individuals, how they interact with each other and the like. There could be an order that there be regular monitoring of behaviours by the employer, through to orders around compliance, training, provision of information, additional support to workers, or that simply risk assessments be undertaken if they haven't been to date and the like. So there's a range of orders that the commission can make, all deal, dealing with trying to prevent that behaviour occurring again.
1: Yeah, and the, the Fair Work Commission can essentially make, as you say, orders that are, that are similar to the current stop bullying orders. The stop sexual harassment orders uh, have been in operation since the 11th of November 2021, and there's only been one decision handed down by the Commission in March last year, which ultimately led to the application being dismissed because the applicant um, no longer worked for the organisation. But like the stop bullying order jurisdiction, I suspect the stop sexual harassment order jurisdiction will follow the same trend line. So we haven't seen a significant uptake of these applications, which is primarily because I think the Fair Work Commission doesn't have those powers under this part of the jurisdiction to order compensation or damages. But that's
0: obviously about to change, um, which we'll get to in a moment. Exactly. Well, Orders can be made against individuals involved as well as the employer. And that's obviously the same as the anti-stop bullying applications or orders. Some of the employer-specific orders that have been made by the Fair Work Commission in that anti-bullying jurisdiction that could also be made in this sexual harassment jurisdiction uh, include commissioning of specific training, uh, as I said before, those risk assessments and, and the like. I guess what that means, Shelley, is that employers need to think about how they might manage a mm. stop sexual harassment order if one lands on their desks and of course where it's served it's served on both the individual respondent or named respondents as well as the company and you'll need to consider if if that does occur in your workplace as the employer, how you'll respond to to the application and whether there's a coordinated response provided by the company on behalf of the individually named respondents or that that respondent needs to seek their own independent advice uh, and respond separately. But throughout all of that, managing the welfare of all the parties, including the complainant, the respondent and anybody else involved will be particularly important. And the approach taken will, of course, depend on whether the matter has, in fact, been raised previously and whether or not there has been a thorough investigation, impartial and independently conducted, and whether or not you as the employer have taken steps to appropriately deal with the outcomes and findings of that investigation and what those steps are. And, of course, regulatory intervention by the Fair Work Commission in this type of stop harassment application It's not the only regulatory intervention that can arise following a a complaint or an incident, a substantiated incident of sexual harassment or sex discrimination. We know, obviously, work cover and the respective state-based safe work regulators can also simultaneously or after the fact get involved and make their own inquiries, particularly if the orders are made and published in this anti-stop sexual harassment jurisdiction. So it's, again, really important that if complaints are raised, that you're dealing with them proactively, properly, independently, uh, and that you're concluding and following through on any outcomes in that investigation.
1: Yes, certainly. And then the next part of the, the amendments to the Fair Work Act is a new jurisdiction which is essentially allowing the commission to deal with disputes relating to sexual harassment. And the sexual harassment prohibition and the Stop Sexual Harassment Order jurisdiction Is now going to be supported by this new dispute resolution framework. And that framework is being modelled primarily on the compliance framework in the Fair Work Act that applies to the general protections dismissal disputes jurisdiction, which already exists. And the Fair Work Commission now has the ability, or may have the ability, to deal with disputes about sexual harassment which relates to past harm caused by sexual harassment, including by making orders for compensation and damages. This framework is is similar, as I said, to what exists in the General Protection's dismissal dispute provisions. An applicant is going to have 24 months after the last contravention to make the application, and the the Commission will be able to deal with that dispute consistently as it would ordinarily with disputes, so essentially Uh, The application will be made, the parties will attend a conference and consider whether the application can be settled. The Commission has powers to hold a a mediation or a conciliation or to make recommendations or express an opinion on the application. If the dispute remains unresolved, then the Commission is, is able to then issue a certificate and the applicant will then have 60 days to essentially... Um, file the application in the federal court. So it will track through the Fair Work Commission and the court system in a very similar way to which the General Protection's applications do now. Where the application does then proceed to a court, the court can make orders that a party has contravened the sexual harassment prohibition and that those orders might also include importantly a pecuniary penalty as well as other orders of course
0: like compensation and damages. And presumably those penalties Shelley uh, are not insignificant?
1: No far from it. So the primarily the primary remedy available is damages and as we've seen in recent years courts Are certainly not shying away from awarding quite significant amounts of damages. In addition, employers are now potentially going to be exposed, as I said, to those pecuniary penalties, separate to any substantiated injuries or damage. The maximum penalty a court could order for each contravention would be 60 penalty units. So that's just over sixteen thousand for an individual, and over eighty-two thousand for a corporation, um, and that will essentially take effect from the first of January this year. This is consistent, obviously, with those maximum penalty units that currently apply under the Fair Work Act in relation to analogous conduct, so discriminatory adverse action, for example. To give you an example of the types of damages that are being awarded um, in a relatively recent case, the Hill and Owen Hughes matter, who essentially it related to a principal of Beasley and Hughes Lawyers, and the court awarded the applicant, miss Hill, in that case, one hundred seventy thousand dollars when she was sexually harassed by her her principal or her boss. One hundred twenty thousand was awarded for damages suffered because of that sexual harassment, and $50,000 was awarded for aggravated damages. So the aggravated damages were essentially awarded for the failure of the employer in that case, Mr Hughes, to stop or prevent the sexual harassment from occurring. And what we're seeing is much larger sums of aggravated damages being awarded in future, in this case, but also in future cases. Um, So I think that there's going to be, particularly given the introduction of that positive duty, uh, and certainly, where the employer is a larger, more sophisticated employer, I think that aggravated damages are going to increase as well.
0: Yeah, right. So, w- w- we've talked about the types of claims that have been introduced as part of these new laws. Uh, I think it's also important to point out that there's anti double dipping provisions that have been included to prevent a person from obtaining multiple remedies in relation to the same conduct. Now, that means that. It prevents the concurrent operation of state and territory anti-discrimination laws and, except in some limited circumstances, work health safety laws to the extent that they deal with sexual harassment. If, however, uh, an application for stop sexual harassment order is made, an application in relation to discriminatory or coercive conduct can still be commenced under health and safety laws for that same conduct and at the same time. Previously, there was a prohibition on the bringing of civil proceedings in relation to discriminatory conduct if a person had already commenced a proceeding in relation to that same conduct. Similarly, a person would not be prevented from pursuing a remedy under applicable anti-discrimination legislation if, where they'd previously made a stop sexual harassment order so if they subsequently make an application to the fair work commission seeking a remedy in relation to sexual harassment they would no longer be able to pursue a remedy under another law all of that really is there as i said the anti double dipping provisions to prevent multiple applications but there is and there are ways in which different jurisdictions are still able to deal with predominantly the same conduct. So again, if a claim is made and if as an employer you are subject to an action, it's important to get advice early on about the potential for multiple actions, but also where those anti-double dipping provisions step in so that you're aware of that.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think that there is going to be an increase of the use of the provisions in the Fair Work Act, given their novelty, really. Um, And I think that there's going to be, you know, an approach taken by applicant lawyers and unions to really try and test these provisions out.
0: Mm, definitely. Yeah.
1: So just quickly, um, it's worth also noting that there are three further protected attributes being introduced under the Fair Work Act in the anti-discrimination provisions. So breastfeeding, gender identity and intersex status have also been included as protected attributes. And these changes really just align the Fair Work Act with existing Commonwealth anti-discrimination legislation. So, in terms of what this all means for employers, it's relatively simple and I know that that's, a, that's probably quite a loaded um, statement, but employers really need to just continue to work on reducing or eliminating sexual harassment and sex discrimination in the workplace. It's an ongoing core part of what needs to happen within an organisation and that focus needs to remain. The prohibition on sexual harassment in connection with, the work, with work in the Act represents another basis for from a compliance and corporate governance perspective to ensure that businesses really are considering what all reasonable steps might be in the context of their organisation. And certainly the new laws will impact business caught on the wrong, on the wrong side due to the risks associated with being identified in public decisions of the fair Work Commission in relation to an application for stop sexual harassment orders, for example, being the subject of stop sexual harassment orders that impact on the day-to-day operation of the business, a finding of vicarious liability in relation to those types of claims, a potential increase of union involvement and union membership in the workplace, given the ability for the union to make these applications now on behalf of the aggrieved person. And also just that point about the Fair Work Act also potentially getting access to third-party investigations commissioned by an employer as part of proceedings relating to stop sexual harassment orders. So the powers of the Commission, as as we've sort of talked through, are quite far-reaching and that intervention and what that intervention looks like is obviously yet to be seen, but I think that there's, there's certainly scope to consider how the Commission might Review or request uh, copies of investigation reports, for example. So, in preparation for the sixth of March, what do
0: businesses really need to be doing? Well, we always end our podcasts with our wise tips, Shelley. And I think first and foremost, my first wise tip would be, and it's not earth shattering, (laughs) but it's to really review and amend company policies and procedures regarding appropriate workplace behaviour and 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 review also your investigation procedures to make sure that they're up to date with the law but also that they're best practice. In our experience, these policies and procedures are either usually too prescriptive or sometimes they're not prescriptive enough or non-existent and yeah. it's important to make sure you get, get it right. And then it's really important on the back of that that you assess the training process and the training content that you're rolling out for your staff. And if training is being delivered electronically, which a lot of this uh, appropriate workplace conduct training is these days, drill down and look at what are the average time uh, being taken by employees to, to complete the training. Is it appearing to be a, a click and or tick and flick exercise and training is being completed much much more expediently than you'd expect it to be? If the training requires employees to take quizzes and to answer questions, Look at the questions that are being answered inconsistently uh, and look at where in the business and who's answering them incorrectly. And I think I'm certainly, and I know you are too, Shelley, a fan of in-person or face-to-face training. Yeah, definitely. I think that at least... That in this area needs to be done periodically and it shouldn't always be online. So mix it up and ensure that content is reviewed by a professional and that it is consistent also with your policies and procedures so there's no inconsistency. Yeah. I think finally my my final wise tip would be look at and think about what your continuing messaging is throughout the year and provided outside of training. So this just doesn't stop once you've done the training. HR teams, work health safety teams, and and generally management should be looking at developing message and content throughout and on a continuous basis. Whether that's being delivered through toolbox talks, through town hall meetings, in individual team meetings on occasions, or certainly, and in indeed, messages from the CEO have a program and a, po- a a system in place to ensure that that messaging is coming through, it's consistent. and it's being given and lived and breathed by those in the organisation that should be in that position to do so, so particularly management and executive level. Uh, managers.
1: Yeah, it's a really important point, and and just to pick up on what you've just said there, it's it's important to be monitoring the trends that are occurring, and you can do so through sort of a, a continual review of what types of issues are occurring in the organisation, what are the types of investigations that you're having to conduct to really allow you to hone in and focus on some of the key areas of of risk that exist to the business within the context of the broader sort of appropriate workplace behaviour framework. And that really leads to one of my sort of wise tips is really to consider that overall framework, including whether you need to implement other policies or framework structures to help you meet that positive duty. So... Have you considered a prevention plan or an action framework, which sits as an overarching guiding set of principles and confirms the commitments that your organisation is making in respect of what it intends to do to eliminate this type of conduct from occurring in the workplace? It also needs to include a a review of your risk assessments to identify hazards and, and to Really look at it from that health and safety perspective like you would any other physical risk or hazard in the workplace. Consider this in the same way. So, you know, sexual harassment can take many types of form or other types of inappropriate conduct in the workplace can take different types of forms. But they obviously create psychological risks as well. So look at it from that overall perspective and once you've finalised and revised your policies and those framework documents, it goes back to what you were talking about before, Krista, which is really providing meaningful training to all of your leaders and your employees, with that focus on taking an
0: active bystander approach. There's a lot, a lot to do on an ongoing basis for for HR yes. uh, and safety professionals. Look. Sadly, I think sex discrimination and sex harassment is still a persistent and a very serious issue and no workplace I don't think is ever going to be immune from the potential for claims, including obviously, of course, historical claims. But by continually reviewing your workplace culture, by getting out and and speaking with your staff, from having leaders that lead from the top with a more proactive management message on this issue and ensuring suitable processes are in place, To manage complaints quickly and fairly and consistently, it is possible and indeed should be inevitable that the risk of offenders committing unlawful acts in your workplace decrease. Now, the good news is uh, we're seeing many of our clients out there being proactive and using this time ahead of March to take steps to reevaluate the existing systems, as Shelly, you spoke about, including those psychosocial management systems uh, in place and complaint processes and, and that training to ensure that they are where they need to be. And I think continuous improvement is the key there. My final tip, I guess, is to make sure that senior executives and boards are made aware of the changes and what the businesses are required or is required required to do to ensure that you're doing everything that you can to prevent sexual harassment, sex discrimination and victimisation in the workplace. Some of our clients are preparing board papers and delivering board sessions and of course we can assist you with that. So if you have any questions about the new laws or if you would like assistance with your compliance review, do get in touch with any of our fabulous team here at Kingston Reed. Thank you Shelley for your wise tips and words and Thank you all for listening. Tune in next time to our final episode in the four-part series on new workplace laws. Thanks, Krista.